the idea of lifescaping for me has really become about, yes, I can lifescape a piece of land. And yes, I can bring lifescaping to my business. But really, this idea that we can have full agency in our lives in order to build beautiful lives that have all of the facets, you know, where we can really embrace being a parent. We can really embrace being a friend. We can really embrace cooking food. That what I have found by really using the system in my business and in my life is that I actually have more energy. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, an activist who's passionate about social impact and building a better, more sustainable future. Each week, I invite you to care a little bit more so that together we can all create that better future. If you haven't already, I'll encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This simple action will help us reach more people as we continue to grow, and you'll be alerted as soon as new episodes drop. Today, we're going to dive into the topic of regeneration as it relates to building our outdoor and our indoor worlds with landscaping and even lifescaping. To head down this path, I'm joined by Monique Allen. Now, Monique is a master creator, an interactive employer, a published author, and a fierce industry advocate in the world of landscaping. She wrote a book to chronicle her thinking and the lifescaping method with her book, Stop Landscaping, Start Lifescaping. As an active business coach, she's developed the regenerative community to support business owners who want to grow their businesses and a supportive community of like-minded entrepreneurs. She considers herself her primary job, a gardener of people, and uses her gifts to empower owners to nurture compassionate cultures and eco-friendly practices that foster triple bottom line success. That's people, planet, and profit. So. Monique, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Karina. I'm really happy to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you here. And as we kick this off, I want to give people a little bit of context for me. My father is a landscape architect. And so (laughs) I have lived in the world of, well, let's just say landscape as it relates to construction my whole life. I mean, my first job was actually working as an archivist at my father's landscape architecture firm in Palo Alto, California, cataloging the work that he did for some major corporations, for Stanford University, and for the ultra wealthy that live in Atherton and Menlo Park, Palo Alto, (laughs) famous football uh, (laughs) footballers like Jerry Rice and things like that. So, you know, I just got to have a different view of this whole world. So as we get started, I wanted to talk about something that you hit on in the very first pages of your book, which is really how, at least how I'm seeing it, how the landscaping industry can be kind of wasteful. Yeah. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me here and for that introduction, because I love it that you get it. Like, you know, there's something about this industry that if you haven't been introduced to it 
you often can't get it entirely. You sort of think about what you see in Scott's commercials, you know? So I really do appreciate that right away, you got the thread of what I was doing. And it is a little sad to think about an industry that that I love so much, that your father clearly loved so much, and that you were introduced to young as wasteful or problematic at all. And when I was writing the book, what I was realizing is that commoditization in and of itself is not, you know, purely evil or bad or anything. It's an offshoot of what happens when things get really popular really fast. And on the one hand, I am so happy that more people have access to gardening, to landscaping, to be in their yards and do things themselves, and that the DIY movement has given more people access. The negative, though, is when you speed up an industry and you need to to make an industry accessible to more people, you look for faster ways to do things, cheaper ways to do things. In this particular world, and you know, I think we know from lots of areas, packaging is a real problem. Driving is a real problem. You take companies that will take work wherever, whoever asks them to do the work, and they will drive all over the place. So they're sort of scattered to the winds. So there's a lot of fossil fuel waste. So for me, I wanted to move out of that product mindset, you know, the thing mindset, and move back to a systems mindset and move back to looking at tending a landscape, developing a landscape as a long game. And that's how I sort of landed on lifescaping. <laughs> well, I think that concept may be familiar to some of those who've listened to this podcast, and in particular, the regeneration series, where I even talk about wilding, right? Yeah. And the reality of building a landscape that is going to sustain itself just through being a part of the natural climate, right? And allowing certain portions of your yard or your outdoor space to trend towards what might actually be a little bit wild while still planned, right? So you're using shrubs or different plants that might be more drought tolerant if you're in a drought area, like in California, that you're using plants that might be endemic to the area. So you're not introducing something like, oh, I really just want to have a banana plant in my yard, but I don't live somewhere that has enough moisture in the air to really sustain it. You know, so how are you then overusing water even to garden your yard just to have it look a certain way that you've pictured in your mind without it really being relevant to the space? And so I think your exact language in the book you wrote down, if I'm remembering correctly, was something about it being product driven as an entire mindset when we're doing things like planning our outdoor spaces as opposed to being environment oriented. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about that and how you kind of got to that conclusion or even just discovered it in a way? Because I think it's something that people don't often talk about. Yeah. I think that for me, so for a while I studied medicinal herbs and I was very interested in health and in our intrinsic wisdom around being stable and healthy in our own bodies. And I learned through that process about how our gut flora worked. And then in connecting that to food, started to learn about how the soil is the functional digestive tract for a plant. And so a lot of the things that we might do to balance our digestive system to keep our bodies healthy is quite similar to what we might do to help and restore especially damaged soils, so that we can 
manage and assist the plants to do what they want to do naturally. So I started to think of gardening a little bit more like a Kickstarter campaign. You know, like it was my job just to kickstart an ecological system that wanted to be in motion, but maybe had stalled out for a certain reason. So maybe there had been construction. Maybe there had been a lawn that had been, you know, mowed a ton and maybe had chemical fertilizers put on it. And so I started to ask myself questions about how I could take the landscape and kind of give it back to Mother Nature while also respecting the fact that human beings need a sense of order to feel safe, that we actually have an intrinsic part of our brain and our limbic brain that is looking for safety, that wants to be able to see over the savanna. It's actually called, there's a, I think it's called like the savanna effect or something like that, where this idea of that long expanse of lawn has some connection to being able to see the lion before it comes and gets you. Right. But it's been capitalized as we will capitalize on things that that strike our fancy or make us feel safe. And so I thought, okay, there's got to be other ways to do this, to have organization, to have health and not give up some of the wow factor. And so for me, it was about starting in the gut, starting in the soil, starting with that beautiful layer of life giving soil and seeing how could we support that in such a way that we build the system and in doing so lifting our heads and really looking at the surrounding the surrounding environment the problem when you're like in a suburban area you look up and you look at your surroundings and nothing is natural but if you are in an area that has more access to unmarred nature then you can look and see what what's going on there already What's going on there naturally that I might be able to pick up on and and use, replicate, borrow into the landscape that I've got? And I think between those two things, it's really easy to shift the way you design, the way you plant, and then the way you garden so that it really is kickstarting an ecological system that doesn't take a heavy hand. Hmm. So you mentioned a couple of things I want to draw out a little bit more detail on. And one really starts with soil health. And I think that's connected to the long game. Yes, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) I would venture to guess. So let's just see if we can talk a little bit more about what makes a soil healthy, or I think as you stated it, just kind of barren, like what makes it unhealthy or not supportive of that microbiome, essentially, that would be required to grow healthy plants. Yes. So in areas that are highly developed, one of the main detriments to soil is compaction. So it's that crushing effect of construction. So when you have a highly constructed like neighborhood or a planned area, usually every inch of that soil has been driven upon. And that beautiful honeycomb of the O horizon, it could have been literally stripped and sold off. This also happens with the A horizon. Oftentimes, a lot of that is taken away. So the O horizon is really your organic matter layer. And then the A horizon is a little less juicy, a little less vibrant with all of the microorganisms, but it is still a highly functional layer. I think that's what many landscaping firms refer to as just topsoil, right? Like it's that. Yeah, it's just that it's weeks quarter like what they buy in the nursery, we sort of call like steam cleaned. It's like this, it's relatively devoid. People call it loam, 
it's tannish brown and it doesn't have a lot of life in it. It's kind of crumbly. It feels like it's been compacted, right? Yeah. Compacted and then fluffed back up. And one of the things that is very hard for me to get contractors to understand is when they drive over something, they say, oh yeah, we'll just, we'll just go with the excavator and we'll just fluff it back up. And it's like, so I need you to picture the gentle wax honeycomb in a beehive. And if you crush it, there is nothing that you as a human being can do to make it again. Only a bee can make it. You can't make it. So no fluffing will ever make the soil better. So when we're looking at regenerative work, we think about reintroducing biology and reintroducing the structural building blocks to allow that honeycomb to come back. And the beautiful thing is that when you do that, when you spend the money and take the time to do that, you actually have the ability to, just like you might heal somebody who has leaky gut, you have the ability to heal the soil. And it's not like it happens tomorrow, but by adding things like really good compost, maybe biochar, which is a wonderful thing to add, maybe fish emulsions or adding just live biology. You might've just grossed out half of our listeners. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I mean, it's true though. This is something I talk about, know a fair amount about because I come from the omega-3 industry and spent 10 years building Nordic Naturals, which is a major fish oil company. Yes. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that fish get used for is fertilizer. (laughs) So once you've extracted the oil and other vital parts, often it becomes you know, fertilizer of sorts. Yeah. Which, I mean, just Neptune's harvest is kind of a cool, you know, one that people can buy and use instead of miracle Grow. You know, when people put miracle Grow in their soil, they are literally depleting the ability for the natural biotic life, the, all the life in the soil, that whole microbial kind of layer, it's, you're just feeding it like Snickers bars and it's not going to last. So If you can use something that's more supportive, maybe a little stinky, you are going to be doing the kind of work that will regenerate the system. And when you have a healthy system, it's not like you have no weeds, but you do have fewer weeds and you have fewer of the problematic things going on. And, you know, weeds, that's a whole discussion in and of itself, but, you know, they're not always all bad. And oftentimes they're telling you something. (laughs) Yeah, they do. And one of the things that Paul Hawken talks about in his book, Regeneration, is that, you know, people, when they look at weeds, the weed is actually there often to go ahead and actually replenish or deliver something into the soil that is missing from it. And so it's like they thrive in a certain condition that might not actually support the life that you're trying to grow, but the weed is there to actually take care of some of that too. And it's like kind of the wisdom of nature. And we're forgetting that there is wisdom in nature as we try to kind of control the environment top to bottom. Yeah, it's so true. And one thing I just want to put out there, I don't know if in California you have poison ivy the way we have the poison oak, which is very similar. Poison oak. Okay. So we have a huge poison ivy because of the increased carbon dioxide in the air is really becoming really overrun. And, you know, there are a couple of camps about whether it's okay and good because it supports the birds or maybe not because they don't really like that food. But the really interesting thing is that jewelweed, which is one in the impatient genus, jewelweed will grow right next to poison ivy. And if you pull the jewelweed and crush it and rub it all over your arms and then go into the poison ivy, you won't get it. That's so crazy. It's so crazy, right? So another one, because this 
totally geek out on this, but we have Japanese knotweed, which is kudzu like that. But yes, you have that. I don't think that's Japanese knotweed, I think is different. Kudzu is a vine, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we also have a huge deer tick problem and Lyme disease problem here. There is so much work that has been done on the knotweed plant and pulling the chemical constituents out of knotweed as a healing modality for Lyme disease. Oh, wow. So there's so much wisdom and not that I imagine every homeowner is going to grab all of that, but if we just slow down long enough, we can say, okay, there's, for instance, a lawn here that gets clover in it. Well, clover is a legume. It's a natural nitrogen fixer. It will pull atmospheric nitrogen and put it down into the soil. Who is a nitrogen hog? Turf. Grass. Mm -hmm. So why not have them live together? If you really need to have some turf, which is great to play, little kickball, whatever, have clover in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You might step on a bee or two. That's what tends to come with it. But I think it's also pretty. The little white and pink flowers that erupt from the clover are really quite great. And kids like to look for the four-leaf clovers. That can be a fun activity. There's always that. I mean, we have, you know, redesigned our yard for the most part. I like to grow plants that produce food. So I have strawberries as ground cover underneath the non-fruiting cherry that the prior owners planted. I don't understand planting non-fruiting cherry. I would much rather have a cherry than a non-fruiting one. (laughs) And we also have a couple plums, a couple lemons, and some other, you know, trees along those lines. We tend to water them with water from our rain barrel or from our shower capture or whatever, right? So it's getting gray water continually throughout the year to support them. But generally speaking, have really reduced our lawn. And part of the reason behind that is the fact that it uses so much more water than other plants do. And we're in California. But the other part of that really is that I think connecting with nature and doing things like planting the types of bushes that flower that the hummingbirds like, it's just nice to have them join the ecosystem and be a part of that. And it feels like when we then go outside to spend time on our deck or in our front yard, like we're a part of a little bit of a wild community of animalia. So I might compete sometimes with the squirrels for the fruits from my trees, Mm -hmm. but that's okay with me too, because I mean, we aren't living in a bubble. And I think that's one of the things that I would drive home to people is in creating your outdoor space. You can't live within a bubble. There's going to be insects and animals and birds of all sorts. And if you plant a diverse yard that can thrive in your ecosystem as it exists, then guess what? You're going to attract some wildlife that will be pleasant. Yeah, absolutely. So I teach garden ecology and sustainable design in the Master Gardeners Association in Massachusetts. And I always tell this story of a client that I had that wanted a butterfly garden. And so, you know, essentially a pollinator garden, but, you know, in particular, she was really, really interested in monarch butterflies and in just having, you know, lots of plants in there that would be supportive. And this is not a joke. I got a call that there were a lot of holes in the leaves of her plants and she had bugs and she wanted me to get rid of the bugs. And, you know, with a straight face, I was like, well, so the butterflies start out as caterpillars and the caterpillars actually feed on the leaves before they become caterpillars of some of the host plants. That's why we put plants that are leaf host plants as well as floral host plants. And, you know, she was great about it, but it was such a, like, it didn't even occur to me when I was doing the garden for her to teach her 
that that was going to happen. Of course, now it's in my narrative. I always say, okay, you're gonna have to be okay with like holy leaves, but you know, at least they're with God. I don't know, you know, so, (laughs) but it's just, we don't know. We have become somewhat disconnected from the wisdom of nature, but also the cycles of nature and the system of nature. And so we think of kind of the house with the plants and the lawn and the driveway, and it could be so much more. And in New England, we have to be in our houses more. We have half the year where it's really cold and sometimes super snowy. So I always like to landscape in the landscape so that if I'm looking from my windows, my whole landscape isn't, you know, under the windowsill. (laughs) And so this creates kind of going back to the Gertrude Jekyll and kind of like this older version of landscape where you are creating strolls, you're creating islands, you're creating small patches of lawn where you might then connect to a path and that path would take you to like, for me, I grow lots of food, but I also grow a lot of medicinal herbs. And so being able to be with those herbs, even if I don't dig them up, kind of that plant spirit medicine, like just being able to be with those herbs, that's restorative. That's regenerative to us as much as it's regenerative to the planet. Well, I love that. And I'm sure that my garden could use an overhaul with the likes of someone like you. (laughs) I wanted to bring something up that gets back to this product conversation because it's something that came up when I was even looking at the types of flowering plants that I might plant. And you'll see articles along the lines of don't choose more than two colors of floral or flowers to have in your garden because it can look haphazard. And I'm like, I want a rainbow. I don't care. (laughs) So there'll be white flowers. I actually have strawberries that have a pink blossom and strawberries that have a white blossom. I have a yellow blossom and a periwinkle blue blossom. (laughs) I tried to grow lavender, but the climate isn't right for it here. It's probably much better where you are. Yeah. I grow a couple different species of salvia. One of them is called hot lips and it looks like, you know, bursting lips. Yes. And then like all sorts of snapdragons just because I love them. And when I was a kid, I thought they were really fun to like grab and, you know, do the little snaps (laughs) with. And so having children now, I wanted to expose them to these things. There's no rhyme or reason to the colors. They're just things that I like that will thrive here. And so I think, you know, there's something to that, to how you express your personality. I love bright color. I like to see blooms occur throughout the year. And I live in California where that's possible if you plant a certain way and if you consider the life cycle of the plants that you do plant. Mm -hmm. So from a product perspective, what do you think about something when you hear, oh, well, you should really just get these particular plants and and really focus on two colors. Maybe it's white and red or yellow and pink or something. Yeah. I'd sort of throw that right out. I'm with you. I love sort of that rainbow of color and vibrancy. First off, I would never design a landscape with the flowers. I would start, I, the way I design is I look at the, the structural nature of when I'm talking about the plants I'm looking at the structural nature because in the winter, we need the structure to give us some of the ambiance and beauty that we miss because all the leaves are gone. Everything's gone. (laughs) So when you talk about structure, you also mean things like you might see the tier of height of the trees and bushes when they're without their leaves. Yeah. So I'm looking at the niches, the layered niches. So heights, spreads, evergreen, 
deciduous, so dropping its leaves or holding its leaves. I might look at branching patterns, very wide branching patterns versus very narrow, skinny branching patterns. Then I look at bark and berry because bark is really quite stunning up against snow. And it can be really, really stunning in both the morning light and the dusk. So there are some plants that have really beautiful barks. And then we move to flower. And with flowers, I generally don't care what color they are. I'm more interested in who is their pollinator? What time of year do they come out? And can I have, you know, my tagline is lifescapes for all seasons. So can I have some interest or support available to my eyes or to the life in the ground or in the around my yard? Can I have something going on all the time? And that really creates a texture in the landscape that without knowing it, I also think is really positively like vibrational for us and for the rest of the landscape. So I love a monochromatic garden that's a theme for, let's say, a little section. We take care of a retirement community and we do all of the sort of beautiful areas, the wow areas. And we have one garden right near the main grand lobby of the entrance to this place that is like in a dark hole. It's just, there's no light. It's kind of, it just feels a little depressed. So we do layers and layers and layers of white flowers, variegated foliage, silver foliage, And that is a thematic garden. That garden has all white. That particular plant doesn't require a lot of light, so it's able to thrive, and then it reflects light, correct? Exactly. Exactly. So it makes it brighter. It brightens it up. That's exactly what you're looking for there. Yep. Mm -hmm. It brightens it up. But I think that going back to your statement about, you know, you should only pick two colors or whatever, I think that the, the danger in that sentence is just the should. You could pick two colors if you were attempting this. If you're looking for calm, you might look at this. If you're looking for exciting, you might look at this. And there's a whole world of color theory that we can play with in that. But I think in gardening, because it really is dealing with life energy, we probably need to hold the shoulds for thou shalt not put chemicals on the landscape. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, when we're using compost, we're also using chemicals, but we're using organic, you know, I mean, everything gets back to chemistry if you really ask that question and scientists will tell you that. I guess I mean the bad ones. (laughs) Well, you know, we don't need to use Roundup in our gardens to get rid of flat leafed whatevers, you know, like that sort of construct needs to go the way of the dodo. Right. So let's talk for a minute about this, though. You know, you are serious about promoting this whole triple bottom line in the world of landscaping and beyond. And I know that when you're talking about service industries like landscaping, often the thing that is the most expensive is the labor. And then everything else is so commoditized that you're not paying a whole heck of a lot for it. And I think the risk when we're looking at that sort of industry in particular is that you're like squeezing the price down. And so it gets harder and harder to put people and planets ahead of the profit that you might make. So specifically in this industry, I wonder if you could talk about that because I know that this also relates to what you're doing with the whole lifescaping work. Yes. So I came to the term triple bottom line, gosh, not that long ago, maybe maybe like six years ago or something. It wasn't really that long ago. When I heard it, I was like, oh my gosh, like there's a word for what I'm doing. This is so cool. And I had invested in some coaches in the landscape industry to really help me 
in growing my business. And so much of it was about, you know, being profitable and being efficient and cutting your costs and functioning lean. And there was so much. And it actually hurt my heart. Like it just, it hurt. Well, because where you squeeze ultimately ends up being your people. It's your people. It's your people. And I got very used to people telling me, you know, well, you're really expensive, but, and I started to want to understand more. Why was I quote unquote expensive? And I realized that there were a couple of reasons. The first is that I run my business in such a way that my people, they work a five day work week. They don't work the weekends. They work a reasonable work week and they're paid overtime. If they work overtime, they have health insurance and all manner of benefits, paid time off and whatever. That is weird in the landscape industry. It's becoming more and more common, but that's because we have bigger and bigger landscape companies that are gobbling up other landscape companies. So we have these big national companies now that can function like huge corporations. But when you really look at the landscape industry, we have most of the companies are under a million dollars in revenue and only employ four to six people. And the people they employ are generally in the office and they're using contracted laborers? No, the people they hire are usually in the field. They're often paid under the table. They often work without benefits. There's a huge H2B program, but that is much more regulated. There is enough under the table employment all around still. A lot of undocumented workers. Undocumented. It's really, really hard. And so I just made a commitment that I was going to take control over the experience that I was going to offer my employees. And that meant that they needed to be fully cared for. And that immediately skyrocketed our pricing. And then the second thing was that we were always going to consider the soil, which meant we were always going to have a portion of all of our fine gardening work and all of our construction work that was about regenerative actions on the soil. Well, if all the other companies aren't doing that, then I was effectively 20% higher for a quote than anybody else. But to the eye, I would plan to plant a garden and they would plant a garden. And if, if the outward look was exactly the same when you first did it, if you walked away and came back a year later, my landscape would be exploding with health and vibrancy and their landscape would either look exactly the same or be looking peaked. And so part of it was to create the sales narrative that just really helped people to understand why our fees were the way they were and what was going to organization, what was going to health and what was going to wow factor, what was going to people, what was going to planet and what was truly going to profit. We are in business for profit. And that took me a long time to be able to say without feeling guilty, without apologizing. And I, what I do now in my regenerative business community is try very, very hard to help other business owners have that same sense of agency so that they can take very good care of themselves, their people, the planet, and actually have a lifestyle business instead of a business that just crushes them over time. Well, I think that's critical for all of us to think about as we consider, especially the service providers that we employ. Yes. I mean, I can just think about in my own world, other service providers that I have worked with over the years from daycare providers to even the tree trimmer that I brought in to cable our oak trees because we just want to see our oak trees live for a long, long time as opposed to splitting, right? In each case, we have looked at the whole picture. And in some cases, the more expensive option was the right one because of the whole picture. 
the whole picture of the experience provided to my kids or the experience of understanding that my oak trees, you know, maybe I didn't need to spend that $1,200, but if I didn't spend it, you know what? I might have had a fence get knocked over in a storm because a branch fell or that oak tree might have split and now I have to pay for its removal and it provided shade and other benefits to me and my home community and home environment. So sometimes these things are investments and it doesn't mean you have to do it the way that you're going to do it. But if you don't, then there could be a consequence that you'll later regret. And so I like this long view of a healthy soil, a healthy yard. I know that mine needs some work. <laughs> we'll have to FaceTime. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to let you see my garden right now and you can judge me. But, you know, I'm thinking about specifically the dump truck that I know happens to be in a planter right now where my kids were deciding to play with it, you know, probably crushing one of my strawberry plants, you know, just as an example. So this just shows the life of a mom with a four and seven year old at home. <laughs> I mean, the intention is there. I'm not working to uproot every single weed I see in the garden. My theme when it comes to my lawn is if it's green, it gets mowed. And, you know, so what? Big deal. So there might be some dandelions in there. Well, dandelions are great too. And my kids like to blow on the seeds and their leaves are actually nutritious. I end up feeding them to my bearded dragon. So my bearded dragon needs greens too. I just think that we need to shift our mindset about our outdoor spaces. But as we bring the concepts that you've learned over the years indoors with your book, mm -hmm. I'd like you to talk for a moment about bringing this whole landscaping to lifescaping perspective into this world for us all as you're working to help people build circular economies, regenerative businesses, mm -hmm. thriving cultures within their companies so people feel like they are appreciated and can grow. And those individuals will likely be more likely to employ regenerative practices in their own lives. Yeah, this has been such an evolution and I would not have known that I would have landed here. I mean, this is my 37th year in this industry. And when I got out of school... You look so young. <laughs> Thank you. I wouldn't have pictured you all that much older than 37. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, regenerative living. You know, at 18, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And then when I got out of college, I was basically told, so when are you going to get a real job? Because I had been landscaping. And so it took me a long, long time to come around to this. But what I've realized is that as I was struggling to figure out my way, I started to realize that the gardening that I was doing was in the lives of the people that I was connecting with. And I first learned that when I worked with a client who I only ever met the woman of the house and I never met the husband and he seemed relatively uninterested, except that his wife really wanted this. And we did a project for them. And actually this happened with another client too. And I'm thinking, I'm telling this story. We did this project for them and Everything shifted in their life, in their home life, in the way they were interacting in their marriage, because all of a sudden he was so interested in the outside, which had always been so interesting to her. And it turned out he was a birder. He loved birds and bird watching. And so we started planting plants that would attract the birds that he liked. And so it really started to shift their relationship. And I have another one very similar, a gentleman who always, he worked very hard in Boston, probably a high intensity job and wanted to run away to their lake house all the time. When we completed their landscape, 
his wife was sort of ready, like, okay, well, let's pack up and go. And his response was, you know, why don't we stay here and have breakfast in the garden and then we can go. And both these women emailed me and were like, oh my goodness, this happened. And I started to get this taste of how people were craving a little bit of slowness, a little bit of connectivity, a little bit of vibrational connection to themselves. And then I started to see the same exact thing with my employees. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be heard. They wanted to be have their potential tapped somehow. And so what I've realized is that that is something that I can give back to my industry, but also to anyone in the service trades by having these conversations about how do we hire? Well, we don't hunt people because that's not very nice, but we could attract them. And that's different languaging in our recruiting. Once we get them so that we avoid the pain of heavy revolving door action, what we can do is think about now that they're here, how do we nurture and develop them? Think of them as that beautiful peony in your garden that you want to thrive and be gorgeous. You would tend it. Why wouldn't you tend the human too? And I think we're soul craving that as people. And when we can build that into our organizations, it can become part of the system so that it actually isn't burdensome work. I mean, it's hard to build these systems, just like it's hard to build a landscape at first. But once the systems are built Once the habits are formed and once the expectations are part of your culture, it is actually in flow. I'm not going to ever say that it's easy. It's in flow and there's a simplicity to running a business and building a business that way so that you actually are fostering compassion. Well, I think that you're speaking to a couple of things that you haven't necessarily come up directly and said. One is that you are in a business that is dominated by men. And so if there are female workers, they tend to be on the office administration side and not on the ownership and running things side. They also tend less to be actually doing the work of the gardening or the landscaping. And so as such as the case, we've taken, I think, a more male-associated extractive view of how we're building the business. And what we're actually seeing today is that there is science behind the fact that running a business in this way long-term can be more profitable, can ensure that you have less turnover, and turnover can be incredibly expensive, especially if there's a lot of training involved in developing your systems and ensuring the execution is proper. So I really do think that this work, it's its a product in a way of you being a woman in this male-dominated field and spending a lifetime doing the work. Yeah. So I applaud the effort. I plan to read the book cover to cover because I know I'll learn something. And it will probably inspire me to get back into my garden a little bit more, to get my compost out and get that trowel and shovel to work. Yeah, I love that. Getting your hands in healthy soil is just, it's so great. Even if it's just even if it's just half hour, an hour, 15 minutes, you know, just going out and loving them. I'm sure like when you go out and pick your strawberries, it's just like, plus they taste better, right? They do taste really darn good. But unfortunately, the slugs usually get to them before I do. Oh, (laughs) I don't know if people are aware of this, but I mean, without using some sort of pest control, slugs and snails, they will get to those. (laughs) really fast. I'll give you just a little tip. I think it'll work for you too, but I grow strawberries really successfully. When you when you mix biochar, if you can get your hands on some biochar and put a little bit, it really should be charged biochar. Maybe this is another com- conversation, but if you can mix that in 
your soil is going to be a little lighter. It's going to drain a little bit better. You're going to have healthier biology in there and tend not to have the same slug problem. And then also thinning your strawberries so that you get more air circulation. And you can also lift your strawberries a little by putting like sticks, like just crisscross your sticks like this, and then hang the strawberries over the sticks. Kind of be fun for the kids to do. You just keep making these little crisscrosses that, you know, yeah, maybe the slugs will get one or two, but you could have fewer. Well, it's getting them off of the ground because yeah, they do tend to like grow. And that's why some people use the strawberry containers. I actually have one. Yeah. I hated them because I had to water it so much in order to keep the soil moist enough for the strawberries to be happy. I felt like I was consistently wasting water. I, I didn't realize how much more quickly they would dry out in that clay pot, but they really, really do. At any rate, that's a story for another day. Yes. <laughs> Before we tip, though, to this close of this show, yeah. you've talked about biochar a couple of times. Yes. And biochar is something that Paul Hawken also talks about. I really didn't know much about it before reading his book. I thought that biochar was like, oh, it's like charcoal, right? Well, yes, but it's created from things that are, talk to us about biochar, what it is, what it can do for our gardens. Yeah. So it's a long conversation. It would go too long, but I'm going to just give you sort of like the little condensed version. So I learned about biochar through, oh my gosh, I'm going to forget his name right now. It all of a sudden just left my brain, but it's the wood is actually burned in the absence of oxygen. And by burning in the absence of oxygen, there's actually no fire. And the places that I get it from, all of the burning is captured and brought back into the system and acts as fuel or heat that we capture and use to heat buildings, to heat greenhouses and so on. So the cool thing about how biochar is made is it's an entirely closed system that creates zero, zero, zero off-gassing. It's really amazing. And the second thing I'll tell you about it is that one way you can think about biochar, it's like a condominium for all of your biology. So what happens is when we have major rain events, when we have disruption or tillage, what will happen is that it will disrupt your biology. So if you can give your biology someplace that's very safe to live and to proliferate, you create stronger structure within that O horizon and even down into that A horizon. So basically what we're trying to do is stabilize our topsoil, right? Stabilize what we're losing so much of by putting that biochar in there. Then when you water really mindfully, your biology along with the biochar is holding your water in the heat events. It's really holding it. And if you can add really healthy mulches. So nothing died, nothing synthetic, but really healthy mulches like ground up leaves or aged wood chips that come from tree removal and so forth. You will begin to restore and rebuild the soils that we need so much. And biochar is just one of those little building blocks that helps the living matter really find its way home so that it doesn't, it just, it finds its way home. (laughs) Right. Well, it's basically putting carbon back in the soil, which the plants need to grow too, right? Yes. Yes. But the biochar itself is relatively inert. Like it in and of itself, it's not doing anything, but it's providing, at least that's my understanding. It's providing a safe haven for all that biology to do all of what it does, which is part of how we can sequester carbon. Right. And so, I mean, I thought of it too, when I was looking at how biochar is made, it's like all of the channels or the cell walls of the actual plant 
that existed before it was charred are still there. So that creates channels for the water to hide and then for the microbes and everything else so that they can resist drought and also creates a soil that just gets a little bit more aeration. Yes. So it's like a little fluffier. There's also some interesting research with cows where they're feeding biochar to cows and reducing their methane production by as much as 90%. It's insane. So I'm just like, the more I learn about biochar, the more I'm like, why aren't we using this solution more? Yeah. And the really interesting thing about it is so regenerative that it's not like you add it like fertilizer. You add it as a building block, just like you would build your kitchen counter, but you wouldn't come down every morning and build a kitchen counter again. It's built. It's there. So the beautiful thing is we're not using biochar as an amendment that we're adding every year upon every year. You might have a couple of successive years where you're adding a little bit to help to create the soil, but then you back off because remember Kickstarter campaign, all you need to do is kickstart the structural health, the biological health and the nutritive health so that all of that chemistry, biology, water starts to do what nature does not need us to help it do. So it's really important to think of that. And the second thing to remember is that biochar will suck the life out of your soil if it is not charged or if you don't add food. So if biochar is aggressively added or it has no charge, it has no food charge in it, it will actually pull what it needs because it remember it's like a sponge out of the plant. So you do have to be careful. You do have to think, go slowly, research it. There is information out there. And then it is an incredible addition to a regenerative system of caring for soil. Well, I just love that. So thank you so much for sharing your knowledge on biochar. Yeah, you're welcome. Now, as we get ready to wrap, I like to ask a question of all my guests. And that is simply, if there's a question that I haven't asked, that you wish I had, and in particular as it relates to sustainability or regenerative businesses, what might it be? And if you have that, then ask and answer it. Oh, goodness. I think maybe the one thing I would say is, gosh, how did you do this and raise a family too? (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that the question we ask everyone? (laughs) Everyone. (laughs) And I really, really believe more and more that the idea of lifescaping for me has really become about, you know, yes, I can lifescape a piece of land and yes, I can bring lifescaping to my business. But really this idea that we can have full agency in our lives in order to build beautiful lives that have all of the facets, you know, where we can really embrace being a parent. We can really embrace being a friend we can really embrace cooking food that what I have found by really using the system in my business and in my life is that I actually have more energy. I feel healthier. I'm an asthmatic and I basically take no medicine anymore that we have such power to direct our health, our wellness, our vitality, if we choose to do so. Well, I can't think of a better point on which to land this episode. So I want to thank you, Monique, for your hard work and for joining us today. And I'd like to invite you back to talk more about things we can do in composting and biochar, and all these things that we can do to regeneratively build our garden and reduce our carbon footprint, because I think that is exactly what we need to be thinking about in our daily lives, because we can affect it. Yes, absolutely. I would be happy to come back. Thank you. I'll be sure to include links to Monique's website for the Garden Continuum, 
with complete show notes, transcripts, resources, and our video interview. Just visit caremorebebetter.com for all of that. Monique, is there anywhere else that you'd like to send people to connect with you? Yeah, Instagram's my happy place. So I love to go onto Instagram. I'm at monique.allen. And I pop on there and I talk about lifescaping and regenerative business and just little tips on how to kind of keep yourself up and motivated in your business. And then I have links that will take you to the Garden Continuums Instagram. So it's just a fun place to connect in a little bit more human and less academic atmosphere. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's perfect. I don't go to Instagram to play so much anymore, but (laughs) I will definitely follow you there. I'm finding my new joy in TikTok and experimentation. So (laughs) perhaps that we can learn a thing or two together, but I'll bring you over there into the dark side of this new millennium of using short form videos to reach your audience. It's fun and silly and a little bit of a time suck, but that's exactly the way Instagram was when I first went there too. Okay. (laughs) Well, thank you, Monique. Thank you. As we close today's show, I want you to lean into discovery. Stay curious and hopeful. Ask questions. Approaching life like that and approaching the challenges that you see around you will create more of an engaged sense in our future. And you too can be a part of building a better future. Now, if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe so you're sure to be notified each time we release a new show. And if you do me the huge favor of going to Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform and writing a review, I would love that. And ultimately, it helps me grow the exposure of the show and add a little credibility. And if you do me that huge favor, I will also ask, send me an email note. Tell me what you think. I really do want to hear from our community and I'm devising content based on the feedback I'm getting. I am going to be leaning in over the course of this summer and beyond into topics of sustainability and regeneration. And so if there's anything in particular in this area that you'd like to see covered, questions that you have, you can even leave me a voicemail on caremorebebetter.com. There's a little microphone icon in the bottom right. You could just tap on that, leave me a voicemail or send me an email directly from the site to hello at caremorebebetter.com. Thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more and we can be better. We can even regenerate earth. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.